0: Episode 5 of In the Nineteenth Century. We're in the midst of a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic here, with almost half of the Australian nation in lockdown again. In the capital of Canberra, where I live, we're in a quasi-lockdown due to our location in the middle of New South Wales. So today's podcast is recorded on Ngunnawal country, at the foot of Black Mountain and alongside an artificial lake, named after a man whose wife, in fact, made the original designs for the city. The irony of that will become clearer as we move through our topic today. I pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Nambri people upon whose land I live and work, and acknowledge that this land was never ceded. Today we're considering the topic of women and the law in the 19th century. While we will of course be touching on the suffrage movement, which became one of the most robust women's law reform campaigns in human history, we're looking more broadly at the concept of the position of women in the eyes of the law. The suffrage campaigns themselves are so rich and involved that they will be a separate topic for a later episode. Instead, today we want to think about the discriminatory nature of the UK laws and their application in Australia during the colonial period, which ultimately fueled the fire for the women's reform movement and led to women seeking a voice in Parliament. Women in the 19th century in Britain and Australia were governed by a discriminatory set of laws that reflected really a society which was entirely governed by men. Formal education was largely only bestowed on the males of the household and the universities only allowed male students for the most part of the century. When women were admitted to universities in the 1870s, In the case of the most prestigious universities, their degrees were not conferred until the 1940s. The dominant Anglican and Roman Catholic churches were utterly male unless you planned to be a nun, one of only a few occupations left for the woman who did not wish to marry. If you went to church on Sundays, as most people did in the 19th century, the pulpit was inhabited by an all-male clergy. The professions such as medicine and the law were populated only by men till later in the century, as was the judiciary, and of course the parliament was entirely male. In terms of the laws governing the people, one of the most discriminatory laws of all were the electoral laws that did not allow any woman the right to vote for the politicians who made the laws in the first place the only women who could practically lobby for law reform were generally the daughters and wives of progressive politicians and men of influence. Because of the discriminatory nature of the laws to which women were compelled to comply, they eventually mobilised to seek universal suffrage, that is, the right to vote, and eventually the right to stand for public office. The logic was that the only way to change their impoverished legal position was to obtain the vote, and the right to membership of the Parliament where laws concerning them were made, repealed and amended. Women and the law, what does that mean? Should I say women in the law or women of the law or the law and women? Or do I mean how does the law regard women and which laws are we talking about or which women? All of these questions dance around in my head as I prepare to record today. For those who like myself are devotees of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, you'll recognise my direct pilfering of her opening gambit to that book, which is about her efforts to research and write a talk for two women's colleges in Cambridge in 1929 on the topic of women and fiction. That is not the last time today you'll be hearing from VW. To narrow the field of reference, my inquiry will focus on British law as it applied to the various Australian colonies, and it will then shift to how the law applied to women post-Federation and the institution of the Australian Constitution, which came into force in January 1901 after about 20 years of preamble and negotiation between the Australian colonies, New Zealand and Great Britain. Since I'm not an expert in this area, later in this episode I'll be joined by eminent feminist legal scholar from the Australian National University and the University of Canberra, Professor Kim Rubenstein, who will talk about the situation in Australia leading up to the enactment of universal suffrage. Why, you may ask, am I focusing on women and the Australian Constitution when technically it falls outside of the scope of the 19th century as we know it? For a very good reason, and that is that 19th century imperialism and colonisation and the structure of that socio-political arrangement greatly informed the content of the constitution, which was drafted over about 10 years between 1890 and 1900. You see, one cannot simply shake off the previous century simply because the calendar ticks over and we suddenly find ourselves in the 20th century. In fact, one could say that the Australian Constitution could only have been written by the ruling class of the 19th century and the profile of that ruling class is decidedly white, educated and male. It is perhaps ironic that much of the discrimination women and people of colour experience today is in fact a legacy of that original drafting consented to by none other than a woman, the woman who personified the century so well Queen Victoria. Why is an art historian concerning herself with the law? I'm not a legal scholar or a lawyer. Instead, I focus my tertiary studies on art history. What could I possibly contribute to the subject? Well, it turns out that many of the 19th century women artists who I research in Britain and Australia were very active citizens and became leaders in the women's reform movement, particularly in relation to the suffrage societies ...that sprung up throughout the empire. For example, the Australian artist Dora Meeson... ...was responsible for creating the suffrage banner... ...which now hangs in the Commonwealth of Australia's Parliament House. It is emblazoned with the slogan... ...Trust the women, Mother, as I have done. Meeson carried it at the head of the Australian and New Zealand contingent... ...of women suffragists in the Women's Suffrage Coronation Procession... ...in London in 1911... With artist Mary Lowndes, she set up the British Artists' Suffrage League, which was responsible for making so many of the banners used throughout the suffrage campaigns in England. But before we meet up with Professor Kim Rubenstein, I'm going to summarise the legal situation for women in Britain and Australia in the 19th century. It is not an exhaustive list by any means, but a summary of some of the most contentious laws women sought to have amended or repealed. And a bit of a trigger warning here. This is not a heartwarming story of brave brave women succeeding in having debilitating laws removed. It's a narrative full of the trauma endured because of the barbaric nature of many of these laws, such as the Contagious Diseases Acts or the Child Custody Laws. Nothing quite sums up the impoverished position of women before the law in the 19th century than one of the most beautiful objects pr- produced by the hands of convict women transported to Australia for petty crimes such as stealing lace to help them feed their often illegitimate children who were so often born from rape and prostitution. In 1841, a group of these convict women stitched a large three metre by three metre quilt, now known as the Rajah Quilt, owned by the National Gallery of Australia. It was masterminded by the women's prison reform activist Elizabeth Fry, who gave the women the materials to sew the quilt on board the ship, the Rajah, that was transporting them to Nipaluna, otherwise known as Hobart, in Palawa country, which would later be called Tasmania by the colonising forces of the British government. The stitching of the quilt was aimed at reforming the women's lives through the delicate art of needlework but instead, they landed into the dark heart of a penal colony where women's lives counted for very little. In 1854, artist and women's reform activist Barbara Bodichon published a pamphlet titled A Brief Summary in Plain Language of the Most Important Laws of England Concerning Women, together with a few observations thereon. It was her first self in what was to become her lifelong mission to reform the laws affecting the lives and livelihoods of women in Britain. One of her greatest victories was the amendments made to the Married Women's Property Act later in the century. And essentially, the importance of this act was that for the first time, women were entitled to keep and own the money that they earned and the value of the properties that they owned. Because previously, as soon as the woman married all of her property and income became the property of her husband, and she was in fact impoverished by marriage. Bodichon drafted a petition demanding reform and then marshaled other leading women's rights activists to collect 24,000 signatures to present to Parliament in 1856, which led to the introduction of a private Member's Bill in 1857. But like so many of the women's petitions to parliament it failed because of the entrenched attitudes towards women and the resistance to make changes to the law that would devolve male power we'll talk about this further in a moment but what is important here to recognize is bodichon's role in collaborating with other women and mobilizing forces to have her arguments debated in public it was the beginning of the modern women's reform protest movement if you think women in the 1970s were radical, refocus on the women of the 1870s and you will see serious militancy at work a century earlier. As Professor Joanne Conahan at Bristol University has argued, and I quote her here, one particular benefit of the petition campaign was that it enabled Bodichon and her team to amass much empirical evidence supporting their contention that the Coverture Laws produced real and concrete disadvantage for women. With some husbands squandering their wives' property, appropriating their earnings, deliberately keeping them in poverty and or dependence, and in some cases being called upon to justify or excuse the physical and the sexual abuse of wives. It is now widely agreed that this first campaign was of vital importance in raising consciousness about women's legal position or lack thereof, and creating an evidence-led case for substantial reform of the law. That was Professor Joanne Conahan at Bristol University. So I'm just going to take us through some of the key laws that discriminated against women. And firstly, we need to look at that concept that um, Professor Conahan raised of coverture. And we need to understand how that worked. Nothing quite sums up the legal position of women in the eyes of the law than the law of coverture, which women, and it must be said, enlightened fair-minded men, sought to overturn in the 19th century. Now, one day in 1877, the suffragist and political economist Millicent Fawcett had her purse stolen at Waterloo Station by a pickpocket. Fortunately, the thief was apprehended and the purse returned to its owner. Her husband, who was also a political economist, the blind Professor Henry Fawcett. To Millicent's disbelief, the thief was charged with stealing from the person of Millicent Fawcett a purse containing one pound eighteen shillings and sixpence, the property of Henry Fawcett. Close quotation marks. It was about one hundred and twenty pounds in today's money, and it equated in the 1870s to about nine days wages of a skilled tradesman. Millicent may have been carrying the money and thought that she owned it and that it was hers, but in the eyes of the law it was the money owned by Henry Fawcett, notwithstanding the fact that without Millicent, who was in fact, in effect her husband's eyes, Henry could not work as an intellectual. Millicent and Henry became joined in marriage and therefore were considered as one and that one was Henry Fawcett. Coverture is a legal concept that conjoins husband and wife in a legal sense as one entity, the husband. It literally means to cover. Before she marries, a woman woman's legal status was as a femme sole. Once married, she became the Latin term femme covert or, or woman covered. In his commentaries on the laws of England in Volume 1 1765, William Blackstone explains this. He says, By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in the law. That is, the very being or legal existence of a woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing, protection and cover she performs everything and is therefore called in our law French a femme covert." or fomina viro cooperta it is said is said to be covert barren or under the protection and influence of her husband her baron or lord and her condition during her marriage is called her coverture so in essence when a woman married she lost her legal personality or individuality Now, the laws of coverture were tested by the reforms sought to the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857 by a remarkable woman, Caroline Norton, who was suffering a highly abusive marriage, which was not uncommon at the time. In fact, a man had a right to physically oppress his wife. Virginia Woolf writes about this in A Room of One's Own when she quotes the British historian, Professor Trevelyan, who explained in his tome The History of England that wife-beating was a recognised right of man and was practised without shame by high as well as low similarly. The daughter who refused to marry the gentleman of her parents' choice was liable to be locked up, beaten and flung about the room without any shock being inflicted on public opinion. Marriage, he says, was not an affair of personal affection, but of family avarice, particularly in the chivalrous upper classes. End of quote. Further to to, to Trevelyan's argument, marriage often took place when a woman was very young. As we know from the novels of Jane Austen all too well, a deep anxiety infiltrated the house of any unmarried daughter in her mid-twenties. Families in the 19th century wanted their daughters married off quickly and the average age at marriage hovered between 22 and 23. In fact, it actually decreased as the century wore on. Marriages before the age of 16 were considered void but there were plenty of marriages in the aristocratic classes of women who were aged between 16 and 18. One notable marriage was Harriet Westbrook who was 16 at the time she married the poet Percy Bicey Shelley in August 1811. Another child bride was Lady Agnes Hay who at the age of 16 married James Duff, the 5th Earl of Fife, who was aged 31 at the time in 1846, and the, the list goes on. But back to Caroline Norton, who, like Barbara Bodichon, without any legal training, wrote a pamphlet in 1854 seeking legal reform. Hers was titled, English Law for Women in the 19th Century. She then wrote a letter in 1855 to her Queen, titled, A Letter to Queen Victoria on Lord Chancellor Cranworth's marriage and divorce bill. It is worth quoting as it sums up the position very well. She writes to her queen, First, I desire to point out the grotesque anomaly which ordains that married women shall be non-existent in a country governed by a female sovereign. And secondly, because whatever measure for the reform of these statutes may be proposed, It cannot become the law of the land without your Majesty's assent and sign manual. Norton then goes on to submit to Her Majesty a brief and familiar exposition, exposition of the laws relating to women. She writes, Number one, a married woman in England has no legal existence. Her being is absorbed in that of her husband, unless divorced by special enactment of the House of Lords, The legal fiction holds her to be one with her husband, even though she may never see or hear him. Number two, she writes, she has no possessions unless by special settlement. Her property is his property. The law gives what she has to him and no will she could make would be valid. An English wife cannot legally claim her own earnings. Whether she weed potatoes or keep a school, her salary is the husband's. An English wife may not leave her husband's house. Not only can he sue her for restitution of conjugal rights, but he has a right to enter the house of any friend or relation with whom she may take refuge and may carry her away by force. Number five, writes Caroline, if the wife sue for separation for cruelty, it must be cruelty that endangers life of limb. And if she is once given, or in the legal phrase, condoned, his offences, she cannot plead them. So in other words, if he's gotten away with it before, she cannot plead that case. If her husband takes proceedings for a divorce, she is not, in the first instance, allowed to defend herself. She is not represented by an attorney, nor permitted to be considered a party to the suit between him and her. But, number seven, if an English wife be guilty of infidelity, her husband can divorce her, so as to remarry again. But she cannot divorce the husband, a vinculo, however proliferate he may be. A special act of parliament annulling the marriage is passed for each case. The House of Lords grants this almost as a matter of course to the husband, but not to the wife. In only four instances, two of which were cases of incest, has the wife obtained a divorce to marry again. Number eight, she cannot prosecute for libel. Number nine, she cannot sign a lease or transact responsible business. She cannot claim support as a matter of personal right from her husband, even though a husband is bound to maintain her. He is not bound to her, he is bound to his country. Later in the letter, Norton goes on to explain to Her Majesty that this is a law for the rich and not a law for the poor. It is a law made for Henry VIII. For whose passions it was contrived, she writes, our method of divorces remained an indulgence sacred to the aristocracy of England. Caroline Norton became an advocate for women's law reform because of her own domestic situation. She was born into a progressive Whig family, and her grandfather was the noted Irish playwright, Richard Sheridan, who had written the play "The School for Scandal." however when her father died when she was nine years old he left the family penniless but caroline was both connected and beautiful she had two accomplished sisters and together they were dubbed the three graces in 1827 she married a barrister and the member of parliament for guildford george chapel norton the problem was that george was a jealous possessive husband too fond of drink and often violent, both physically and mentally, abusing Caroline. George was also unsuccessful as a barrister, and money was problematic during the marriage. Indeed, this concept of the wayward, alcoholic, philandering husband became one of key forces behind women's attempts to gain greater independence over their money and their rights in the 19th century. Despite all of this, through Caroline's connections, her husband was able to rise up to become a Metropolitan Police Magistrate, and she turned to literature, publishing several successful novels. Encouraged by her success, she eventually decided to leave her husband and pursue a literary career, an early example of women embracing professionalization and making a livelihood from their art. In 1836, Caroline left George and survived on her earnings as an author. But as we know, a married woman could not own her own money, and as they weren't divorced, George successfully argued in court that her earnings legally belonged to him as her husband. Norton thus had no money for her literary labour. She decided to push the law to the limit to make her point though. If she could not own her own money and everything belonged to her husband, so did her debts. So she decided to run up bills in her husband's name. And when she could not pay them, she simply told the creditors that if they wished to be paid, they could sue her husband george then abducted their three sons and went to scotland according to english law in 1836 children were also the legal property of their father therefore caroline could do nothing to regain their custody and we're going to get to child custody acts shortly in the meantime george also went further and accused his wife of having an affair with none other than the prime minister of england lord melbourne george blackmailed melbourne for the enormous sum of ten thousand pounds which Lord Melbourne rejected, leading the upstart George to take the Prime Minister to court in a trial that lasted nine days, almost bringing down the government. The courts ultimately rejected George Norton's case, but Caroline's reputation was in tatters. As a controlling patriarch, he continued to refuse her access to the children and refused her claim for a divorce. Her youngest son died from an equestrian accident, not because his injuries were serious, but because George neglected to care for him and blood poisoning set in. But regardless of this, Caroline could not rest custody of her children. It was because of this great injustice that Caroline Norton became an active campaigner for women's rights. But it was her work on custody that mattered the most. Parliament passed the Custody of Infants Acts in 1839, which included many of her reformist ideas. This dramatically amended the way that custody of children after divorce was granted. Previously, child custody was generally awarded to the father, but the Custody of Infants Act of 1839 permitted a mother to petition the courts for custody of her children up to the age of seven and for access in respect to older children. This was a major step forward. It was the starting point of a new doctrine in the area of child custody called the Tender Years Doctrine. The Act gave married women, for the first time, a right to their children. It challenged the notion of the father right and patriarchal rule over children. This is highly significant as we begin to see a shift in power occurring. However, women needed to petition for their rights in the courts courts of chancery, and generally speaking, women whose marriages were ending did not have the funds to pursue this. George Norton also gained the situation because the new law did not apply in Scotland, so he simply kept the children there. Later the Matrimonial Causes Act reformed the law on divorce, making it more affordable. The Married Women's Property Act of 1870 allowed married women to inherit property and take court action on their own behalf. The Act granted married women in the UK for the first time a separate legal identity from their husband. But of course we notice one thing. The law is really only available to women of means, middle to upper class women. This is another theme that emerges today. New, fairer laws do not necessarily allow even access to the law. Prior to the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857, divorce in England was a matter for the ecclesiastical courts and subject to the canon law of the Church of England. The bill to enact the Matrimonial Causes Act proposed to create a civil court to regulate divorce and to allow it to proceed to court by civil litigation. The Act in effect established the new Court of Divorce and Matrimonial Causes, which now had jurisdiction to hear and decide civil actions for divorce. However, this Act did not contemplate the grounds for divorce for men and women equally. A husband could petition for divorce on the sole grounds that his wife had committed adultery, whereas a wife had to prove a succession of grievances combined, say, adultery in consort with other offences such as incest, cruelty, bigamy and desertion. This, of course, would also require her to have an advocate or a barrister, and no doubt because the onus on her was far greater than a man, it was more likely to cost her more money to file for divorce. And of course, in 1857, married woman had no money. Her money belonged to her husband. In fact, as an aside, the Anglo-Australian artist, Mary Stoddard, who married a man who found business and work challenging, found that her husband pledged her paintings in his bankruptcy proceedings, offering them to annul his debts. This is a woman who who was friends with the so-called Father of Federation and New South Wales Premier, Sir Henry Parks, Who commissioned her to paint his portrait on several occasions and yet her earnings from her paintings were not hers to keep. Parks who was a suffragist and who kept one of Mary's portraits of him until his death was possibly thinking of her a lot when he threw his support behind the women's suffrage movement in Australia. British matrimonial laws also applied in Australia a point that we will also get to shortly. One of the more high-profile cases in Australia was that of the writer and international lecturer, Tasma, whose name was Jessie Fraser, later Couvrier. Her divorce from her errant husband, who had fathered a child to their housekeeper, took 16 years to effect. Such was the complexity and social stigma attached to such proceedings. Mr Fraser was, and I quote, a man somewhat given to horse racing and betting. Tasman needed letters from Mr Fraser stating that he no longer wished to have anything to do with her. Her biographer concludes that both parties wanted the divorce and it was necessary for them to file documents that were basically made in collusion together to support the fact that neither husband and wife wanted to stay together and therefore a divorce was necessary. But nevertheless, even though they were in collaboration on this. The divorce took an age and was finally granted in 1883. While the circumstances of the Married Women's Property and the Custody of Infants Acts still rile today, it was the various contagious diseases acts in the 19th century that incite a deep sense of anguish, anguish, trauma and frustration in any right-minded person. The passage of these acts was one thing, stealthily pushed through Parliament in 1864 Alongside certain agricultural acts, which meant that people did not realise that the um, Contagious Diseases Acts actually applied to women. Instead, they thought that the internal examinations sanctioned by the law applied to cattle, not human beings. These laws, despite public dissent, were upheld in 1866 and 1869 and also applied in Australia. They were designed to regulate prostitution and control the spread of venereal diseases, largely in the military garrisons and naval ports where prostitution was prevalent. So the acts actually only um, were valid for certain regions of, of Britain. The drafting of the acts revealed a complete injustice and misogyny towards women, for they punished the women who were found to be carrying venereal diseases, but not their male clientele but it was the enforcement of the law that was the most detestable. The acts authorised the police to detain women in particular regions who were identified as prostitutes. The police did not require any evidence to bring a woman before a magistrate who would then approve the administration of a barbaric gynecological examination of the woman in question, often leaving her internally injured and if pregnant would result in miscarriage. If she was found to be carrying venereal diseases, she was held in a lock hospital until she was cured and that could take you know, maybe up to three months. The women in question were almost always impoverished and without access to legal representation. It revealed the double standard of sexual morality that applied in the Victorian era, where women were given so few options for employment beyond marriage and family. Betrothal required a pristine and blameless record on the part of the woman. Otherwise, she was considered a fallen woman and therefore unmarriable. Indeed, women who had nothing to do with prostitution could and were falsely accused, therefore ruining their reputations and their chances at marriage. The story of Josephine Butler and Florence Nightingale as campaigners for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act Acts is one of the great narratives of the 19th century reform movement, which concluded with the successful repeal of the Acts in 1886. In February 1883, a resolution was tabled in Parliament that this House disapproves of the compulsory examination of women under the Contagious Diseases Acts. It was debated in April 1883 with MPs voting by a majority of 72 to, to suspend the inspections. But the acts were not formally repealed until 1886. This debate and delay in the repeal was overseen entirely by House of Parliament, populated only by men who clearly did not appreciate the urgency of this legislation. It was because of these discriminatory laws that women sought influence in drafting and amending laws that affected them. They sought the right to vote and ultimately the right to sit in parliaments where the laws were made. It was these early attempts at law reform that mobilised the suffrage movement in the United Kingdom and Australia, indeed throughout the Western world. Now I want to get to this matter of how the British laws were applied in the Australian colonies. The English laws also applied in Australia under what was known as the Colonial Laws Validity Act of 1865, which gave form to the doctrine of colonial repugnancy according to enid campbell who in 1965 wrote an essay called colonial legislation and the laws of england colonial repugnancy was desired so that there was a uniformity between the laws of england and her colonies it deemed that no commonwealth laws could be at odds with british legislation colonial governments in australia did not wish to enact laws in contradiction of the english law and colonial judges deferred to English judicial precedents. Enid Campbell points out something really interesting. Very few laws or judgments were ever vetoed by British legislators and judges. This actually means, not that the lawmakers in Britain were sort of turned a blind eye to what was happening in Australia, it actually means that the colonies were very compliant with these laws. Campbell explains, and I quote from her extremely well-written essay what is significant is that colonial governments acquiesced in the restriction on local legislative competence and formulated their policies with reference to it one only can speculate on the sort of legislative ventures the colonies might have embarked upon if their legislatures had not been encumbered by the repugnancy doctrine but when it is suggested that colonial legislatures displayed little imagination or originality in thought, or too often were inclined to follow English legislative precedents without sufficient regard to their suitability to local conditions, it must be remembered that for a long time, colonial constitutions allowed very limited scope for innovation and experimentation. No colonial government would think it worthwhile to initiate legislation which the courts or the colonial office would grind into powder with one blow. In light of this, the achievement of women's suffrage in Australia, first in South Australia in 1894, followed by Western Australia in 1899, and then in a federated Australia in 1902, is a remarkable achievement. When considered in reference to the doctrine of colonial repugnancy, The achievements of the women's reform movement in Australia, which led to Australia becoming the first country in the world to give women both the right to vote and sit in the House of Parliament, and really nothing short of radical. Colonial governments, who otherwise dutifully adhered to all UK laws, dissented when it came to women's suffrage. The case in South Australia is really fascinating because the debate was so robust In 1894, the new Premier of South Australia, armed with Labour Party seats in the Upper House, introduced the Adult Suffrage Bill after the activist Mary Lee had presented a petition to Parliament with 11,600 names on it. The Conservative Party Against Universal Suffrage decided to take a calculated risk that had worked in New Zealand when women sought to be elected to Parliament. They agreed to let the bill pass if the clause making women ineligible to sit in Parliament was struck out. They gambled that the Parliament would balk at that revolutionary prospect of having women sitting in their very Parliament. Therefore, they, in their minds, the bill would be defeated. So the wh- bill actually went up seeking that women not only gain the right to vote, but also the right to sit in Parliament. At 11.35am on the 17th of December in 1894, the vote was taken and the bill carried, with 31 in favour, 14 against. A remarkably robust result for universal suffrage. I think Clare Wright has summed it up best in her remarkable book You Daughters of Freedom, when she writes on page 57, this extraordinary act of political miscalculation meant that South Australian women, including Indigenous women, now had full political equality, making them the most highly franchised women in the world. Conversely, in England, things took considerably longer. The first women's suffrage petition to Parliament was in 1866. The debate trundled along well past the death of Queen Victoria in 1901 and did not reach its conclusion until 1928, With the passing of the Representation of the People's Acts of 1918 and 1928, the opposition to suffrage was vehement and violent. With those opposing the idea arguing things like, "Women do not need. Women do not yet know how to vote, and there will be more informal votes than ever. Delicate women should be considered, as well as the screaming sisterhood. Most women don't want the vote. Homes will be broken." Children neglected. There will be a decline in birth rates. They would only copy their husband's voting preferences. They would become too manly. In essence, it was not feminine to seek political rights and the fabric of society will be destroyed if women are given the vote. I want to conclude this part of today's podcast with a brief discussion about a very interesting painting that few people know about or have the chance to see. In fact if they did see it they would hardly think it an historic depiction of the birth of the women's reform movement instead they would think it was an illustration for a chocolate box lid this is not because the artist is lesser but because she saw the birth of the movement as a stealthy act and one that could not stray too far from accepted visions of femininity the artist in question is bertha newcomb and the painting has two alternate names. The first being an incident in connection with the presentation of the first women's suffrage petition to parliament in 1866. And the second name it goes by is the first women's suffrage petition hidden under an apple stall. The artist was one of the first women to attend the Slade School of Fine Art which was the first school um, art school in Britain which allowed women to draw from the life model. She became a leading suffragist, a member of the progressive socialist organisation the Fabian Society, and the unrequited lover of the author George Bernard Shaw. The work was painted in 1910, the year before Dora Meeson carried her banner in the famous women's coronation procession. It depicts reformists Elizabeth Garrett and Emily Davis presenting the 1866 women's suffrage petition to Sir John Stuart Mill in Westminster Hall. And yes, the women gather up the petition from underneath an apple seller's cart. The petition to Parliament contained 1499 signatures and it had been hidden under the apple seller's cart before it was surreptitiously handed to Mill as he went into Parliament to argue its cause. The painting was owned by the Fawcett Society before being transferred to the Women's Library at the London School of Economics. Therefore, it bears a strong link to the woman who had her purse stolen at Waterloo Station, Millicent Fawcett, who at the age of 19 also organised signatures for the first woman's suffrage petition, the subject of this painting. I raise this painting in this context here because it shows the reformist women dressed in their heavy crinolines, adhering to the stereotype of demure feminine women undertaking acceptable domestic work, while stealthily seeking redress to the discriminatory laws that govern their existence. Why I believe this painting to be so important is that it is one of the first examples by a professional woman artist, indeed any artist, which depicts the reform movement in Britain as history. In my view, Newcomb was frustrated with the slowness of reform in Britain in contrast to the enfranchised women of the new world in Australia and New Zealand. She intended to show her audience that the push for equality had begun a long time ago and that governments were still oscillating as the world around them turned modern. Thank you for being a part of today's podcast on women in the law in the 19th century. This concludes part one of the episode. Part two features renowned feminist legal scholar, Professor Kim Rubenstein, and was recorded at the Museum of Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia. I look forward to joining you all there. For those who have enjoyed today's music, you have been listening to Agnes Zimmerman's Violin Sonata for Piano and Violin, number one, in D minor, opus 16, um, which was composed in 1868, and it has been the first movement known as the Allegro. Thank you. Thank you.